your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one. They're all over this room underneath uh, the chairs around you. And Ephesians 4 is on page 977 or so. Let's pray together before we hear from God's Word. Our Father, we come to You needy. We want to be as Isaiah calls us to be those who are broken, contrite, humble, lowly, and who tremble at Your Word. And so we pray that Your Spirit work that into our own hearts this morning, and that as we hear Your Word, we would be transformed by it to be comforted, encouraged, convicted, strengthened, renewed. So please put Yourself in Jesus on display for us, and change us by your Spirit's work. Amen. Let's read this together. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, this is about change, real inside-out transformation. It's about Christian growth. So, we all want to change. We all have things in our life that we want to change. And as Christians, if you're a Christian, you know that God calls you to pursue a life of change. He calls us to live a new way of living. But very often, we either don't know exactly what we're supposed to be uh, changing in our lives, we don't know what we're supposed to change, or we don't know how. And so, we settle for maybe high standards with good intentions, but this text that we just read shows us that we need more than good intentions about wanting to change. This shows us how to actually begin changing and to start changing. And so, before we look at this more closely, we need to see this little one-paragraph section in light of the broader context in this letter that Paul's writing to these Christians in this city of Ephesus. So, the letter to the Ephesians that we've, we've seen this a number of weeks has really two main parts or two halves to it. The first half is about the gospel message of God's grace, this great news that has been announced because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, Jesus has lived the perfect life that every single human being, every one of us included, has failed to live. We all deserve condemnation and eternal judgment for that, but Jesus, the innocent one, died a guilty death that we, don't, that we deserve to die but don't want to have to die. That's what happened when He was crucified. And then He was buried. But then He rose again on the third day, showing that He defeated death, 
And he's now the risen king of the world, and he offers forgiveness and freedom and new life to all who come to him on terms of grace. And he's coming again. And so we live in that hope. So the first half unfolds the blessings that come to us in light of this great message of God's grace to us, the blessings of being chosen before the foundation of the world, the blessings of being forgiven and adopted into God's family, the blessing of being given the Holy Spirit, the blessing of being renewed from the inside out, made alive together with Christ, the blessing of being united together across ethnic and class and socioeconomic divides. And then the second half of Ephesians moves from all of these gospel blessings to begin speaking about how this should radically change every aspect of life, every part of who we are, our thoughts, our dispositions and attitudes, how we treat one another around the dinner table and the first minutes we walk into the door of our workplace, how we speak to those whom we don't appreciate and who aren't kind to us as affects all of life our relationships, our sexuality, our vocations, our family lives. So that's what the second half is about. And so last week, we looked at the beginning of this second half, the first half of chapter 4, and we saw that we are called, in light of God's grace, to a humble Christ-like unity together. In other words, where the Apostle Paul goes first when he starts think, talking about how our lives should look different is really two main categories of thought. One, humility. Remember, that was the first characteristic that he calls us to, to be humble and patient and gentle. And then the second part of this is to pursue Christ-like unity together as local churches and in a local church. And so he calls us to this unity together, this humble unity where we are being transformed together to become more like Christ. So as we receive His grace and kindness and patience toward us, we then begin to extend that to one another. God's creating a whole new humanity, and the local church is where we see that most clearly displayed. And so our text this morning comes right after that and is connected to it, and it shows us that we cannot attain that kind of Christ-like unity together without the intentional pursuit of personal, inwardly rooted transformation. In other words, we have this beautiful vision of humble, Christ-like unity that we're called to pursue in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And that's a beautiful vision, and we've got to pursue that, and it gave some, some uh, guidelines for even how we pursue that. But now he, Paul pivots, and he gives us this framework for thinking about how real change actually happens. Because we can't just have this beautiful picture of Christ-like unity in a church and this call to humility uh, without knowing how we actually are transformed from the inside out to make that happen. So we can't just have high standards for unity as a church, good intentions, maybe the assumption that we're doing it, without actually pursuing intentionally our own personal, inwardly rooted transformation. So the main point I want to show from this text is this. The Christian life involves continual process of transformation from the inside out. That's the point. We're called to this intentional pursuit as the regular pattern of our lives. The Christian life is one of constant, intentional pursuit of renewal. And so this text that we just read shows us that by God's grace we can change and we must change or we can reverse those. We must change 
and the good news is we can. So this section has three, three movements. We see what we leave behind, why this is so important, and how to change. So let's walk through this together. So first, what we leave behind in this process of transformation. So in verses 17 to 19, Paul's making one main point. He's giving an urgent command to believers, those who have already begun following Jesus. You can see this at the very beginning here. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's the main command. Now, if you're new to Christianity, that may sound a little bit strange. So, two things we need to understand at the outset. First, this image of walking was a Hebrew metaphor for uh, a, a lifestyle, a course of life. So, this is call, we're called to not just walk differently, but live differently. And then second, Gentiles. Uh, that's not a word that we use very often um, in our common language anymore, but it was a Jewish way of referring to all the people who were outside of God's um, Old, Testament, Old Testament covenant people, non-Israelites. And so, Paul is using this most likely in a general way to refer to a culture and practices that are out of step with the culture and practices God calls His people to pursue together. And so, Paul's saying to them, now that you're Christians, your lifestyle has to change. You can't live how you used to live. And this is important to see because this kills our pride actually at the outset. I think there's a danger whenever we think about um, certain behaviors or lifestyles that we're called away from as Christians. Um, we can too quickly be tempted to enter into that and think that we're, we're now different because of something special about us. And so Paul just reminds them right here, this isn't kind of an us versus them reality. This is, this is a who you used to be and you've been changed and it's still a temptation in your life, and so you need to keep fighting this and leaving this behind. So right at the outset, this is reminding us that God does not save us after we clean up ourselves. He meets us in the midst of our moral mess, and He rescues us by grace, forgives us fully, gives us new hearts, and begins transforming us. And so Paul's actually saying that our concern here is not mainly about the culture out there, but about the culture in here, in the churches and in our own hearts specifically. So that's his point. You personally, I, you, we need to pursue change. And so he gives this overview of the human condition that we were all born as a part of the trajectory of every human life, the capacity of every human being other than Jesus. And so Paul starts by focusing on the problem the way that humanity thinks, fallen humanity thinks. So he says at the end of verse 17 and 18, he refers to the futility of their minds or their thinking. He says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. So he's saying the way we think about the world is darkened because of this ignorance. And ignorance there isn't just about lack of information, it's, it's a lack of knowing God. Um, there, there's a darkened understanding because of an ignorance, a lack of knowing God. That, that makes us lead to, just, to darkened understanding, the way we think being meaningless or futile, trying to make sense of the world but not factoring God in, and therefore not really understanding the meaning of life, not really understanding the purpose of life, not really understanding the human condition well. It's like being given a cluster of puzzle pieces and told to put it together without having any idea what the image is, having never seen anything like it before. And, it, and it's a group project where people are given a bunch of pieces, and they're already jamming them together, and you've got to work with what other people are doing. I mean, that's kind of the human condition. We're all trying to make sense of this world, not factoring God in, because we don't want to most deeply. 
and then we, we live in, in, a, in a world and have a worldview that ends up not making sense of reality as God made it. And so why is our thinking wrong? Well, he gives this deeper reason next. He says it's due to their hardness of heart. So he says we were darkened from our understanding, we're separated from the life of God because of our hardness of heart. So the fundamental problem of the human condition is not a lack of information. It's our lack of openness in our hearts to God. And this all results in a certain way of living. So there's this heart hardening that happens that leads to this alienation from God, leads to a darkened understanding, and all of this results in a certain way of living. So you can read it with me. He says they've become, as a result of this, callous, right? Loss of a feeling, no longer sensitized to guilt or shame. And they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, This word greedy can be translated covetous. There's this sense of we're always wanting more. One of the more profound ways that the Bible speaks about sin is that it has an addictive aspect to it. Every time we sin, our capacity to choose between right and wrong and discern that is actually broken and altered. Our appetite grows. We become enslaved to our desires. We can think that we'll stop at any time, but we're out of control. This is why our sin, your sin, has escalated so often. And you find yourself doing and saying things or going places you never would have dreamed you were even capable of saying, thinking, doing, or places you were capable of going. We think that just once, and then I'll stop, and then it gets carried away because there's this internal greediness that sets in. So that Paul's not saying here that everyone is as bad as they can possibly be. The Bible affirms um, what's called common grace. This is the grace that God gives to all humanity in various ways, and that includes the gift of restraint, the grace of restraint. People can have a darkened mind and hardened heart, but still be pretty nice people. That's God's grace to us all. He restrains us from keeping us from expressing the full capacity Um, of what we're capable of. You know, Jesus taught this when he was teaching on prayer. In Luke 11, he said this. He looked out at his disciples and he said, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would give, instead of a fish, a serpent? Or if your son asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? Any fathers in here? If your son asks you for breakfast, would give him a plate of scorpions? Right? Jesus knows that that's a pretty rare father who would do that. Uh, But listen to how he put it. Because he's, he's making comparison. If, if fathers do those things, then of course your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts. But listen to what he says. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. So do you hear that? Just even that side comment. He's saying that you are all very nice people. That's actually his point there. You're nice people. But then as a side point, he says, you all evil people are pretty nice. In other words, we're, we're all, as one person, one pastor put it, we're all nice evil people, according to Jesus. So here's the point. Even in our niceness, our hearts can be hardened, our minds can be darkened, and even if we choose to do things that may align to God's standards, really most fundamentally we're not doing that because we've embraced God's standards, but because we've decided for ourselves what we think is best or right or wrong. I mean, that was the problem in Genesis 3, wasn't it? I mean, eating fruit doesn't seem that drastic of a problem. But the most fundamental problem there 
is that they rejected the God's heart of love and they decided that they would decide for themselves what's right and wrong for them. And so this is, uh, the, leads to the problem of the human condition then. And so all our behaviors flow from our hearts, some nice, some clearly evil. And hasn't world history demonstrated this? I mean, century after century, we've seen various cultures and countries demonstrate this kind of darkness. So, I mean, the Enlightenment brought all sorts of new optimism for humanity. And then the 1900s came, and World War I hit, and World War II hit, and that optimism was ruined right away because we've seen what we're capable of across the globe, across cultures. We don't just need more education. Uh, we need a fundamental transformation in the human heart. And so, Paul's saying this is the human condition apart from Christ. And his point is that if you, if you are a Christian, the good news is the Lord is transforming you at the core of who you are. And, he, and, and this involves us. God is doing this. We're receiving this. But it also means we have to actively pursue this engaged with God's power, which is why he urges us to leave this way behind, right? Isn't that his point, the command? He's urging us to no longer walk as we used to walk, to no longer live according to that way of living. There's a process of renovation that we participate in. So, let's move second then to see why this matters, why transformation and growth matters. Verses 20 to 21, you can read it with me. So, he gives this contrast now, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So that, that way of describing the human condition, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So we leave these ways of life behind, these ways of thinking and feeling and living behind because they are incompatible with following Jesus. Except Paul doesn't just say, that's not the way that you've learned information about Jesus. Isn't it striking what he actually said? That's not the way you learned Christ. We've learned a person. Christianity, the heart of it, is not a set of rules or guidelines. It's a person. So when you become a Christian, receiving this fresh renewal of forgiveness by grace, you then are not handed a set of commandments to put into practice in your own power. You have come to a person, Jesus Christ. You've received Him as your Savior, you've submitted to Him as your King, and you love Him. And we always become like what we admire, and so we're to become like Him. And so a clear implication of this is that when we become Christians, we receive Jesus. He's given to us both as a Savior and as an example, and He never gives us only one of those. He gives Himself to us as both. So, He isn't just a Savior from the penalty of sin. He's an example to follow. Or we can think of it like this. When you become a Christian or when you became a Christian, one of the words to describe what happens then is conversion. Conversion refers to this process of repentance and faith. We repent of our sins. We turn away from them. We turn away from this old lifestyle, whatever direction we're heading. We, we do a complete pivot, and then we turn to Christ in faith. We trust Him. We receive His grace. We rely on Him, and we receive Him as our Savior and King. So, Paul is saying here that conversion is not just for the entry point of becoming a Christian. 
it actually describes an ongoing process as well. Con- conversion has an ent- a dis- decisive entry point where God gives us a new heart. We have eyes open. We receive Jesus. We're forgiven. We're in. We're His children. But then that process of repenting and believing, that's not just a one-time 30-second reality that we just leave behind and now we just kind of learn new information because the process of transformation doesn't just happen in 30 seconds. It's a lifetime of walking by repentance and faith. So Jesus did not say to people, come to me in repentance and faith for a moment and then go on as you were. And here's a, a hell insurance card. No, he called people to follow him in a whole new way of life, uh, a whole new way of living in the world. For example, Jesus, you may be familiar with what he, the way that he called people to follow him. He called people to take up their cross and follow him. So we think of the cross mainly as the cross of Jesus, but that was um, also common, uh, commonly around as a, an execution device before it even happened to Jesus. And so when Jesus is calling people to take up their cross and follow him, he said, deny yourself. In other words, take up this, this uh, execution instrument, and people would. They have, often have to carry part of their cross on the way to their place of crucifixion. So he says, you take up the instrument of your own death because this is about self-denial. This is about killing your old self. This is about putting to death your old desires and follow me. So he called people to take up their cross and follow him. But what's so striking as well is that he didn't want them to think of it as just a one-time momentary decision, but the beginning of a lifetime of decisions. So here's how the Gospel of Luke puts it. He said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus, from the outset, when he invited people to come to him, he was telling them, from this day forward and the rest of your life, bring all of that to me. Take up your cross daily. If you want to follow me, this is a daily commitment and recommitment over and over and over to kill yourself selfish inclinations and trust me and follow me, a daily life of repentance and faith. It was a pattern of life that he was calling people to. So this is incredibly important for us to consider today because in large parts of American Christianity over the last century, people viewed following Jesus as a one-time decision that then didn't actually have any implications for their daily life. Many people were invited to an event to hear about Jesus as the one who forgives sins And they were asked to raise their hand or come forward or circle um, something on a card. But they were never actually called to turn away from their sin or turn away from their past lifestyle. They were never called to repent. They were never called to actually follow Jesus as a daily experience and pursue Him. And so the gospel is actually better news than this. Because the gospel is good news that Jesus doesn't just lift the penalty of our sins but that he actually has, he's given us power to make us new. The good news is, is not just even that we have to change, but that we get to change and that God is changing us by grace and he's involving us in the process. So that's why this is so important. So Paul, Paul's writing to Christians and he says, you've got to leave this old lifestyle behind. And then he says, because that is not how you learned Christ. He's actually appealing to them to remember what he taught them when he planted that church, perhaps a decade or so before. 
He's saying, don't you remember what I taught you? I never told you a version of Christianity where Jesus is your Savior from sin, and then you go on living how you, you want, and it doesn't matter. He said, the way you learned Christ, the way you learned Him as a person, is both as a Savior who forgives you and as an example. So you've got to keep laying those previous ways of living behind you, and you've got to pursue Him wholeheartedly, because this is the message that you heard at the beginning, and it's the message you keep hearing as we go on. So let's move to the next part of this text, which is the process of change, how to change. So Paul gives this process in three steps, but I hesitate to call them steps because they're not just kind of a a one after another. They're really three aspects of renewal that are repeated and continual, but there is a logic to them. So here's the three steps. Put off, be renewed, put on. And these are three essentials. They're three things that, that we're called to do when we initially follow Jesus, perhaps The Lord is calling you to follow Him for the first time this morning, then this is how you begin following Him. And then for all of us who have already begun following Jesus, this is the daily path of renewal that we're called into. So three steps, put off, be renewed, put on. So let's consider each of them. We're taught first to put off, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So remember what Jesus said. Right? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This is another way of saying that. Right? Take up the instrument of execution and kill your old self. What a, I mean, this is really countercultural, isn't it? Um, one of the marks of a, the dominant worldview of our time is to find ourselves and then express ourselves, to discern our true self deep within, our heart's desires, and then express those as individuals. And Paul's saying, identify yourself and kill yourself. Put it off. It's radical. Now, it's important to recognize that that this isn't a fundamental um, kind of self-killing at the deepest parts of who we are. This is our our former self, our old self. And actually, you can see where he's going in this in verse uh, 24, where he talks about we're being created into the image of God again. In other words, we were originally made in God's image. God made humanity good very good. Who we are as made in God's image is good, but we have become corrupt. And therefore, this old self that that is corrupted through these deceitful desires, and we have hardened hearts, we need to put that behind us and take off, put off our old self so that we can be renewed to who we were always really meant to be in God's image, restoring our true humanity. But the point here in this first step is to put off our old self, put our selfishness to death. So Paul's saying something similar to what Jesus did in taking up our cross daily. He's saying that there's an old self and there's a new self. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So let's hold these together for a moment. So in one place, he says the old's already gone. The new has already come. Decisive, done. When we become Christians, that's what happens. But now he's saying, put off the old self and put on the new self. Isn't that striking? So, just is the tension of the Christian life. There's a fundamental decisive reality where our old self is killed and put off when we become Christians, and we become a new self with a new identity and new creation. And yet, until the time of the restoration of all things, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, until that time comes, we're living in this tension where 
these sinful desires are still in us. We've decisively put them off, but every day we've got to keep doing it. We've got to keep fighting because these tendencies are still alive. They're, they're seeds that can still grow, and we've got to keep putting them off then. So there's a decisive shift that happens in our lives when we begin to follow Jesus, but we're still tempted, and we still go to work every day at this. So we put off the old self, but this isn't enough. We can't just say no to things. We won't change deeply if that's what we had. So the second step is be renewed, verse 23. So put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So this is incredibly important to put right alongside with what we just saw because it's not just enough to say no. We have to be renewed. You and I need transformation, continual transformation. And notice this is kind of put passively. Be renewed. doesn't say renew yourself. Be renewed. So there's this combination of passive reliance on God in, in that sense. God is the one who renews us, and yet we are called to be renewed. So there's an engagement with us involved in this. So how do we, how do we allow ourselves to be renewed? How do we pursue this? Well, there's a great sermon by Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. And the whole sermon's great, but the title itself makes the point. The title is this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here was his point. You can't just get rid of your old desires. You can't just say no to them and expect them to leave. You can't just say, I'm going to stop doing that. And I mean, does that actually work? Right? Resolve alone? You can't do it. So he said what has to happen is that those old desires have to be pushed out by new desires. New desires enter in, new affections enter in, and they have an, an expulsive power to them. So if you want to get rid of old desires, these, these old addictions of sin in your life, the way to do that is not just to say no to them, but also to get new desires to be renewed and have this, these new desires that have a renewing, expulsive power in them to push out the old desires. So he says, no one's transformed by just looking at destructive behaviors and negative emotions and saying to ourselves, stop it. But here's how you can get rid of those. You pursue renewal through Jesus. You have to be transformed by a greater set of desires, namely to know God in Christ. In short, we change when we love Jesus more than we love our sin. The reason why we sin is because we love it. That is the power of sin. You and I sin because we love sin. We love what holds the promises it holds out. And there's an expulsive power of an affection in Jesus that pushes out these lesser desires and that changes us. So the only reason we sin is because we love it, but if we love our Savior more by God's own power, sin loses its strength, which is why we won't sin at all when the new creation actually dawns, not because we'll just get really good at saying no to ourselves, but because Jesus will be so beautiful to us, and we'll be so happy in Him, and we'll be so happy to be together with Him. Nothing else has taste. So here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of the most profound statements, I think, for just the, the dynamics of renewal. He says this, we all, as Christians, with unveiled face, 
are beholding the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. So we're beholding His glory. And then he says we're being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. So we, as we behold Jesus and love Him and treasure Him and have this new affection for Him, it has an expulsive power to push out our old desires, and therefore we become like Jesus from one degree of glory to another, daily, renewal, more and more, one degree to the next, every day. So that's step two, put off, then be renewed, and then finally put on, verse 24. And to put on, we were taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what is this new self all about? Well, here's two aspects of our new self. First, it means that God is making us like Himself. Do you see that? We put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God. That echoes Genesis 1, when God created humanity, and He said, I'm making them in, God said, we're making them in our image, the triune God makes us in His image, and we are called then to reflect Him in true righteousness and holiness. So God's now recreating us. We've become corrupted. We've not imaged Him or reflected Him as we should. And now He's recreating us into His image, making us like Himself again. Paul said something similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. He said this, And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So similar thing. Our new self is being renewed after the image of our Creator. God made us to become like Him, to reflect Him, and now He's at work to recreate us, to renew us into His image. So this new self is reflective of God. And second, it means that we're becoming truly human. We're becoming what we're always meant to be. Growth as a Christian is not a denial of our humanity, but a restoration of it, a restoration of how we were always meant to be, apart from sin's influence. We were always made to live together in joy and peace and harmony and love and gentleness and patience. And the reason for that is because that's what God is like. God made a world to reflect His moral beauty, and we were made to reflect Him. And we've ruined it, clearly, and the Lord's restoring it day by day, beginning with His people and churches. So, summarized here by the words, true righteousness and holiness. That's the goal of transformation. So, those are the three steps. Put off, be renewed, and put on. And we need all three. So, think about it with me. What happens if we just try to put off our old self, but we don't pursue this process of being renewed in the spirit of our minds or putting on this new self? Well, what will happen is we'll become legalists. We'll become critical and negative. We'll just tell ourselves to stop it. Probably tell each other to just stop it. We'll become critical and judgmental, and it won't actually work. We won't actually have the power to say no. What happens if we just try to be renewed without this act of putting off our old self and putting on our new self? Well, then we'll become perhaps passive in the process and prideful. We'll think that just seeking inward renewal means it's just happening automatically. And we'll think that we're getting better when maybe we aren't because we're not actually actively battling sin in our lives. But Paul calls us to an urgency here. 
a sense of urgency with fighting sin, putting off and putting on. And what happens if we try to put on without those other steps, without putting off or being renewed? Well, we'll be like a Christmas tree that many of us will be putting up, right? Decorated, put some lights on, make it look really beautiful, but it's dead. It's either not real or it's dead, and it's going to decay. And you can try to light it up all you want, but it's only going to last so long. This is what happened to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, whom he called whitewashed tombs. They did a great job cleaning up their behavior, and they were dead inside because they weren't having this process of inward renewal through the beauty of Jesus happening. So let's consider a few implications for us before we go. Uh, And actually, before we do, uh, some of you may be thinking, what about those who say that they're Christians, but they look like hypocrites? I mean, this is about renewal. If Christianity is about renewal and becoming like God, why do so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus look nothing like Jesus did? It's a big issue today. Uh, So many people claim to represent Jesus in this world look nothing like him. Maybe you're not yet a Christian, and this is one of the hang-ups that you have because you see what looks like hypocrisy. So a few things to consider. First, it's helpful to know that from the words of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, uh, there are hypocrites. Some people do claim to follow Jesus and do claim to know Jesus who do not know him and who are not actually having any intent on changing. Jesus dealt with these people in his own ministry. He said to his disciples, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he went on to say this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, the one who's transformed. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, didn't we do all of these things, seemingly miraculous, but notice what none of those touches on, inward renewal. Did we not do all of these awesome things? And Jesus says this, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. In other words, those of you who have never truly come to me with taking up your cross to follow me, true repentance and faith, depart from me. So it's helpful to know that there are hypocrites. Jesus agrees. Second, some Christians are growing, but they might have had a harder starting point than others, so we need a lot of patience, right? Uh, Some people have changed a ton Some people have put in so much effort by the Spirit's grace to be transformed. They've become a different person. They're different than who they used to be. But they still look like they're kind of the bottom few rungs if you're going to kind of have a moral ladder to compare people to, right? Because the process takes a long time and they had a rough starting point. They have habits that have formed over the course of decades, perhaps, that have become entrenched and it's going to be a long process. So we have a lot of patience with each other. And third, then, it is a long process. This There's been a decisive transformation of putting off and putting on already, but we still have to work this out in our everyday lives, and the process is long, and none of us have arrived. So the only person who ever lived perfectly like Jesus was Jesus. The rest of us are in process. And then a final note, the mark of real Christianity is not just sinning less, but repenting more. Real Christians commit real and sometimes spectacular sins. But the difference is often that they own it, they confess it, 
they repent of it, and they seek God's renewal. And that's not hypocrisy when that happens. That's humility. So, all right, final couple implications as we wrap up here. First, for each one of us, some of you might need encouragement after considering a text like this. You are sincerely trusting in Christ. You are pursuing renewal by His Spirit's grace. You're resting in Christ for the full forgiveness of it all, and you want Him to change you more. But you look at verses 17 to 19, that first part of this, and you tend to see yourself there. You think, I'm, I still see so much of that in me. I am not like Jesus. I'm not real. My heart is often so hard. I'm still so sinful. My heart is callous. And so if that's you, I want you to be encouraged because the people whom Paul is actually talking about in verses 17 to 19 don't typically have your thoughts about themselves. They don't want Jesus. They don't want his help. That's the point. In fact, to repent of a calloused heart and to be grieved over that is a sign that your heart is no longer calloused, but you're sensitive to it. So be encouraged. You are on the path. If you are clinging to Christ, he's transforming you. Keep going, and your sensitive conscience is evidence that the Lord's working in you. Others of you may need exhortation. You read Paul's description of darkened minds and hardened hearts, and you don't see yourself there at all. You don't see the seeds of that in your own hearts anymore at all. You don't think that there's really much in your heart or mind to repent of anymore. In fact, if you're honest, when was the last time that you actually felt grieved over a present sin because it was against God? We may lack self-awareness here. We don't see that we're called to take up our cross daily and pursue this daily. So you may be growing as a Christian in part, but you lack self-awareness, and that self-awareness or lack of it is a hindrance to the deep renewal that Paul's calling for here. He's calling us to an intentional, urgent lifestyle of renewal. So some of you need to be encouraged to keep going. Some of you need to be exhorted from this, and I encourage you to receive that from God's Spirit. For all of us as a church, finally, Paul's not thinking just about individuals here, but local churches. So if you were here last week, we saw this beautiful vision of a unified church, a church humble and patient and pursuing this Christ-like maturity. And Paul just got done speaking about that kind of pursuit of unity together. And then he goes right into this text to give this framework for transformation. Why would he do that? And actually, the, verse 17 begins with therefore. Um, if your translation doesn't have it, it should. No, some don't. It's therefore. Therefore, you've got to leave these things behind. And why? In order to pursue that kind of unity. In other words, the point is this. We can have high standards for church unity. We can have good intentions to be unified as a church. But if we are not daily pursuing inward renewal by God's Spirit, we will not be able to actually have that unity as a church. High standards and good intentions, in other words, as um, one brother put it to me this week, is not enough. We can become prideful and disunified without this process of personal renewal. And so, we'll go from here in coming weeks to think about specifics. This is kind of like a framework for renewal that then Paul gives a bunch of explicit instructions for. So, next week, um, Eric's going to be 
uh, unfolding this next text for us that then applies this transformational framework to all sorts of aspects in life, and then we'll go from there to apply it further. And so let's pray to the Lord now and just thank Him that this is reality and that we have His grace. Our Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us. We thank You for not leaving us in our brokenness and calloused hearts and darkened minds, but you have shined the light of your glory in Jesus. We thank you that he is a Savior who saves us from all aspects of sin, its penalty and its power and eventually its presence. And so we look forward with hope to see what you will do in our hearts and lives individually together in these coming weeks. And we pray that we would be this humble community uh, that does not get prideful over an awareness of humility but stays low before you, looking only to you and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and receive a benediction from God's Word. This benediction is from the end of Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace.